So, Austin, here's an important question for you. All right, what's up? What is the greatest Christmas song of all time? Oh, uh, Silver Bells. Incorrect. The greatest Christmas song is <laughs> All I Want for Christmas is You. <laughs> it's not It's not Baby, It's Cold Outside? <laughs> nope. Mariah Carey, motherfucker. Oh. It's a fact. Okay. Anyway, it's time for a Christmas special. We're talking a slightly unconventional set of films Very. in terms of Christmas movies. We're doing <laughs> the 1994 film The Ref and the mid-2000s Ryan Reynolds slightly weird misogynist possibly comedy Just Friends. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Kiersey, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who just put up his fucking Christmas tree yesterday, and I'm just in that fucking holiday spirit. Oh man, I love that. That makes me so happy. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, a philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., etc., and I am alone this Christmas, and I don't even have a friend that was like, hey, I'll Skype with you on Christmas to keep you company. Like, nobody. Like no, not, Nobody said that? Nobody, nobody said, said that. that they, not they even... Talk, they, no, not even my co-host and one of my best friends in the entire world said that. Like, no, seriously. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm one of your best friends. Oh, that's, that's uh, is that your Christmas gift to me, Austin? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I'm chilling. I'm in Dublin, and I'm actually going to probably try to go see, to get myself in the Christmas spirit more. Uh, sometimes, like, Bono and Glenn Hansford and, like, random local musicians chill down in the city center, and they do, like, a Christmas concert every year on Christmas I love Christmas the idea Eve. that Bono is a random local musician. <laughs> I know. Well, they do, like, a Christmas concert uh, in uh, the middle of the city center sometimes. Now, Bono's not always there, or sometimes it's the edge that's there, but, you know, nevertheless, there's always, like, people in, like, hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of people go, and they sing, like, Christmas carols, and they sing songs and shit like that, so I might <coughs> do that. So, anyway, so... As mentioned in the opening, um, this well, last year we kind of had a slightly more complicated Christmas special. We ra- we rattled through a lot of Christmas films. So this year we're keeping it simple. We each picked one. We're doing a double bill. Uh, I picked the 1994 Dennis Leary comedy The Ref, and Austin yeah. picked a comedy from the mid 2000s, which I have to say I never necessarily thought of as a Christmas movie until I watched it again, which is the Ryan Reynolds vehicle, Just Friends. Yep. So, Austin. I've decided that we are going to do the ref first because I've just decided that. Cool. Works for me. Cool. How's minding my own business breaking into this house when I ran into this dog? I hate this dog. I took those people hostage. What are you going to do? Shoot me? Go ahead. Shoot her. I hate these people. Why don't you eat something? Why don't you eat kids? Go into the den. And this lady. We haven't had sex in, in quite a while. What are we, girlfriends here? I hate this lady. Is anything wrong? The <laughs> ref. Uh, the ref concerns a couple in a small village in Connecticut, played by Kevin Spacey and Judy Davis, who are in the midst of having a sort of marriage. Their their marriage is in trouble, and they're going to a marriage counselor, played by B. D. Wong. Um, and uh, basically, they're on the verge of divorce. While you know, while coming home, they end up getting hijacked by Dennis Leary, who is a that's what we use that jewel thief, a sort of safe cracker. He's a cat you know, basically, it's a ge- general cat burglar type <laughs> who has been left high and dry by his getaway man and needs a place to hide out. They go back 
to the house of the couple who are also waiting on their delinquent son to return from military academy who's in the midst of blackmailing uh, J.K. Simmons. Yeah. Um, who, for and, some reason, um, like, has gotten younger as he's gotten older. Like, he looked really... I know, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. He looked really like, old in 1994. J.K. Simmons is one of those guys who you could never imagine what he would have looked like at 20. <laughs> he was probably bald and looked yeah, like... He's probably... I mean, you like know, he does now. was probably bald when he was 11. Yeah, and looked like he does now. Like, it's crazy. Anyway, um... So complicate basically uh, complications arise when Dennis Leary realizes that he is he has kidnapped the most annoying and obnoxious couple ever who will not cease to air their dirty laundry in front of him arguing and having uh, problems forcing Dennis Leary to act as a sort of ref if you will um, and try and essentially solve some of the problems that are going on within the marriage uh, this all comes to a head when um, the when uh, Kevin Spacey's obnoxious family uh, his mother and his brother and his sister-in-law and their uh, children come over for uh, the Christmas Eve dinner um, and uh, it all descends into complete chaos, which uh, Dennis Leary basically ends up kind of threatening everybody with a gun and uh, posing as the uh, posing as the marriage counselor and trying to uh, uh, trying to uh, basically ride out the evening. Uh, it uh, eventually kind of ends with the couple reconciling thanks to Kevin uh, to Dennis Leary's somewhat unconventional therapy. Uh, <laughs> rating of them if you will and uh, and um, ends with everyone realizing the true spirit of Christmas and Dennis Leary getting away on a getaway boat and uh, Kevin Spacey and Judy Davis uh, reconciling their issues and reconnecting with their son also telling uh, Kevin Spacey's mom to go fuck herself which so, is important which is important who is also the grandmother bat. from while you were sleeping oh look at her so we're, we're connecting this to all all sorts of Christmas shit at the moment look at that so this is this is kind of an underseen movie. This was a film that I caught on TNT a bunch when I was uh, a kid, and mm. I think was probably one of those films that was fairly cheap to buy the rights to. So it was kind of mm. rerun because one, you could run it at Christmas, and two, it was a cheap one to to uh, to you know to, to buy the rights for. Sure. Uh, it was directed by uh, Ted Demme, who was kind of one of the early pioneers of kind of hip hop television. Um, and did uh, uh, directed Yo MTV Raps. Um, oh yes. Also, uh, you also directed things episodes of uh, Homicide: Life on the Streets. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you remember the Do you remember the movie Beautiful Girls with uh, Natalie, a young Natalie Portman, and uh, 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 and then he also made the Eddie Murphy Martin Lawrence vehicle Life. Oh yeah, I remember that one. I'm pretty sure he directed a Tupac movie in there somewhere as well. I can't remember. And this totally this film was also made like right in the heyday when Dennis Leary was like doing his damn thing, man. Like there was well, a this time. was also like because this was the thing is too like basically um, the screenplay was written uh, by what isn't there's no totally how to say it, Richard like Graveness who's also uh, directed quite a few films. Um, and his sister-in-law. Okay. And basically, um, the screenplay existed for a while and was kind of like being rewritten and in constantly and kind of turnaround. And then Ted Deme and Dennis Leary came aboard it as a package because oh. they had direct because Ted Deme had directed Dennis Leary in all of these MTV promo spots where he was kind of the I'm get truth teller. I'm gonna say it like it is kind of 
you yeah. know, sort of diet Bill Hicks guy. Right, right, right. Yeah, and this was like he had a moment, right, where he was fucking huge. He was, like you said, he was the uh, diet Bill Bill Hicks, or maybe even more like the abrasive Bill Hicks. Like Bill well, Hicks. I think was also a- Bill Hicks even kind of said he kind of stole his act. Oh really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Ex- Bill Hicks didn't like Dennis Leary. Okay, Dennis Leary seems more abrasive to me than Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks was always a truth teller and cutting through the bullshit, but Dennis Leary was always angry, well, right? Well, the weird thing is, too, like, this is almost at the same time, though, where you kind of start to see the beginning of Dennis Leary, like, wanting to be taken more seriously as an actor and not just wanting to be, like, the kind of mm. motor mouth angry guy. Because, mm. like, you know, now you look at Dennis Leary and he was, like, he, he had that show Rescue Me, yep. which was on for years where he played the firefighter. And, right, right. You know, and... I tend to see when I Dennis Leary shows up in things now, he tends to be playing a pretty serious role. He doesn't tend to be playing comedic parts that much. Hmm. Yeah, when I think of Dennis Leary, I think of him as an actor first before a comedian. And it's partly because it was a little young when he was in his heyday, like in 94. See, so, I, I, was, I thought you were going to say I tend to think of the Sandlot. Oh, yeah, when he's the stepdad, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of forgot about that until you mentioned it. But yeah, and even in that, he's playing a very sort of straight role. It's not comedic. He's not being abrasive. He's not being mean. Like, yeah, he's a little bit of a tough guy, but he's not – it's not forced in any way. It just seems very natural. But no, like in this time period from like 93 to like 2000 almost or like 98 or something like that, he was in fucking – Everything. Like, well, I'm not sure it's so true much, as much now, but it, certainly in the night in the 80s and 90s, there was this kind of thing of, and maybe it was kind of I don't know, maybe the post Saturday Night Live era or one, but it was there was this kind of thing of, oh, there's this big comedian, can we stick him in a movie and make him a movie uh, star? So it's like because yeah. they tried to do the same thing with like Andrew Dice Clay, um, and then but then you have other examples where you know it kind of works out, like you know. Um, uh, you know, like Robin Williams is kind of that. You, you know, he, um, he, he was this popular stand-up who then had this popular TV show. Can we make him work as a movie star? Yeah, Eddie know, Murphy. Eddie I mean, Murphy, look, look exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I Jim mean, Belushi. Yeah, yeah. It's it's worked out a lot. I wonder if television has kind of changed the dynamic too, because then in the '90s it Probably. was the idea of everyone trying to get their sitcom, right? So you hear comedians yeah. talk, and all these comedians were like, they thought that uh, that LA was like mecca, that they would just come and that they were just giving out sitcoms to good comedians. Yeah. So all these comedians are coming, like hoping to get their million dollar check for their sitcom, and it did happen, right? Like Ray Romano and Roseanne, and obviously well, and Seinfeld, baby, Tim Allen and one. Seinfeld, yeah. And so you get all of these big comedians that did get these huge paydays, but now that's all changed that isn't that way anymore you know like like yes comedians are still being farmed so to speak and yes it's still important to go through like if you go through saturday night live that's a great vehicle to get you on but that's more sketch comedy that's a little different than stand-up comedians so because they're actually actors sketch comedians are actors um like and i actually have this theory that i think that if you train in sketch comedy it actually primes you to be a better serious actor a lot of times than if you just go well, to like there's always been a, a, drama a lot of talk or, definitely of this idea of how much how like comedy is an area that it's easier to go into serious roles than it was to be a serious actor who goes into comedy oh i think so for sure cuz comedy's hard to do if you're not trained in it or if you don't have that orientation whereas drama is easier to do if you have the orientation of being able to improvise because it's all about the moment and stuff like that so i think that comedic actors can actually make some really nice turns as serious actors and dennis leary is one of those guys and that's the first thing i gotta say about this film 
I know Kevin Spacey is a dickhead. We've all known this for years. Now the public finally knows He's kind of playing a dickhead this. in this movie to a certain extent as well. And he's doing a great job, man. He is great at playing a dickhead. Like, have you ever seen? Have you ever brilliant. seen Swimming with Sharks? No. See, if you ever see Swimming with Sharks, Kevin Spacey, as, as an L.A. guy, you should see Swimming with Sharks. Okay. Because it's basically, it's about a guy who, it, it's, a, it's, it's basically about a guy who, Kevin Spacey plays a movie executive, and um, what's his name, James Whaley, he is like um, the most put-upon assistant that you could possibly imagine. He's basically, it's basically the Devil Wears Prada, but as a kind of darker uh, satire on the American film industry. Okay. Um, and uh, and Kevin Spacey is just the most evil fucker in that movie yeah. that you could possibly. Which I always thought I always found really strange because knowing having heard all those Kevin Spacey stories for you, you're kind of like, how can Kevin Spacey not have the level of self awareness where he doesn't see that the character that he's playing in that film is exactly what people say he's like in real life? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a couple of reviews crossed his desk and he was like, yeah, fuck off. But but yeah, no, he's fantastic in this movie. Judy Davis is great. I mean, the acting across the board is really solid. Like, Dennis Leary isn't uh, the type of person that's going to win accolades for his acting, but what he's doing in the film is good. He's, I mean, the worst, the the, the, the weakest link is the kid, but, you know, that's kind of going to be the, the tendency anyway because kids don't really know how to act. Some kids well, he's, he's, do. He's earnest, is kind of like, and that's kind of what you expect out of a, a child actor is he's quite yeah. earnest in how he's sort of going about things. Yeah, and sometimes it's a little too earnest, but, but across the board, the acting is fucking stellar in this. Like, Judy Davis and Kevin Spacey are fantastic together. Even, like, the small roles, too, like uh, Christine Barinsky, you know, she's always great anytime which she's Which character something. is she? She's the um, sister-in-law. Oh, yeah, she's great. I love her. I love her. And she's another one of those people that I swear looks the same age. Oh, yeah. No, she doesn't age either. Jesus, man. I was like, this is 94? But but the- she also – she plays a who in uh, yeah. The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, which you're kind of like – because you look at her and she is like – you know, a little bit like how I said like Numi Rapace playing an elf in Bright is like the most <laughs> obvious piece of casting ever. Like – yeah. Christine Baranski playing a who in Whoville is one of the most obvious pieces of casting you could possibly imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's great in it, too. Um, all of the, the sort of supporting cast do a really good job. The guy that plays the drunk Santa is decent. The grandma is good for what she is. Honestly, I thought the acting across the board. And to me, you know, that's really important to me. And and I know some people, they it doesn't bug them as much. But for me, that is the the most surefire way to take me out of a movie. Well, I, I think I think there's two points that this film really needed to pull off to work. One of which was the performances. I think, like, you need it because it's so much a chamber piece. You're so much in, you know, you're so much stuck with these characters and their issues and their dynamics with each other that you need to like the people that you're watching. They need to be engaging. So getting... That trifecta of that kind of main conflict of Judy Davis, Kevin Spacey, and Dennis Leary, those three people have to yeah. work to make this film work. And then yeah. the second one is actually the conflict. The conflict needs to be mm. engaging and interesting. And actually the thing that's really good is that I don't think that these people's problems are kind of trite Hollywood problems. I think they're actually well mm. thought out domestic issues that these people have with each other and their resentments and their regrets and the things that have built over time that make sense and so when it Mm. comes to this airing of grievances you're like okay i get that that actually makes a lot of sense what i like is where it gets to this point where uh, you know dennis them being stuck in this position has them have to actually 
open up and say to each other, look, I resent the fact that you – uh, that we opened this restaurant in New York and that and that one bad review and you you shut it down. And then he goes, wait, no, in all honesty, on fairness, it wasn't one review. It was from this place. And actually, you weren't helping at all. You didn't do anything. In that. And, and I think that's what's really interesting, because when you see them at the beginning and they're at the marriage counselor, it's just sniping. It's just them trying to get points on each other. But mm. the interesting dynamic that happens when Dennis Leary puts them under this sort of pressure cooker is that it ha- it forces them to have to actually confront each other in a real honest way and the fact that the writing is clever enough to be able to actually express what these couples problems are and show how their dynamic changes when they actually start opening up to each other i actually think is one of the really really hard things that this film manages to pull off Mm. yeah yeah i agree um i think the only thing i can say is in reference to our star wars podcast this is how you build natural organic drama. Okay, let's, let's, take notes. Down a rabbit hole if we take don't do notes. That. Take notes, screenwriters. You just like you just you just you just doing this to try and fuck with me, man. Because like, because don't forget, Austin, we got a, we got your film to do next. So I, I don't think you want to be going down this road, man, because it's not going to end well for you. But I'm not precious about stuff, so I don't really care. You know, it's all good, man. It's all good. No, um, I I enjoyed this movie. Um, I probably had seen it when I was a teenager. You know, watching it on TV uh, on network television at some point. You know, like an edited version or something like that. I didn't remember it at all until you mentioned it and you talked about Dennis Leary. I was like, oh, fuck. And you know what I remembered in my head? I remembered the cover where he's standing there and they're tied up in the background and he's got his leg up. He's got his one foot up. That's what I remembered. And I must have seen it on like a blockbuster cover or something like that walking around or something like that. I have no idea. It's amazing how many films that I remember having seen the video cover of while wandering around video stores. But, you know, the interesting thing is to, with this film is that I think it's, you know, it's, it's a movie that has just one of those very pitchable concepts. Like you could see this as a great sort of elevator pitch movie. Uh, Jewel thief takes a couple hostage who are having marriage counseling problems and has to essentially counsel their marriage. uh, You know, uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's, there's something that's so kind of high concept about it uh, that it could have been so trite and shitty. You can see, and I think I say this a lot, but you can see the shitty version of this movie like yes. really, really easily. And and I think the thing is, it has to put a lot of work in in the unflashy areas to make it not be that trite and silly yes. movie. Like if they were to remake this now. I think it would be shitty because you'd cast a comedian like Will you Ferrell. You'd cast Kevin Hart as like the, as, the, thief. As the Dennis Leary role. Yeah, and, and then you'd cast like Will Ferrell and uh, I don't know. Who would you cast as – you could cast – they'd probably uh, cast – Amy Poehler. <laughs> yeah, that's what they would do because they would try to up the comedy factor, right? And, and actually that's the thing is like the comedy elements of this are actually quite subtle. Agreed, and I think it – it's it's not even a like I actually so I, like I said I didn't really remember the movie at all if I had seen it and I was watching it and the first scene I was like this isn't a comedy this isn't funny this is actually the the tone that it sets is serious um human story you know like serious marriage conflict and you're like fuck man these people are awful and then you're uncomfortably laughing because of how awful they are to each other and how sort of like even keel dr wong is at the in the opening scene which is which is kind of nice 
and then the humor comes in the sort of the 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 things you don't expect or the way that Dennis Leary comes in to sort of kind of cut through the tension that has already been established and that's what makes it funny is it's sort of like you laugh to relieve the tension that's been established and it does that throughout the movie and it and, and it's very good um there are no slapstick moments there are no like one-liners the comedy that comes is a dark sort of like you're laughing at the tragedy of the what human think, condition. What I think, I think the comedy comes up from a slightly more souped up version of very relatable things. So, for instance, you know, it's very painfully ridiculous when she put does the, she wants to do this kind of traditional Scandinavian meal where they're all wearing these crowns with candles right. sticking out of the top of it, <laughs> and it looks kind of ridiculous. But it's not like laugh out loud. It's more amusingly ridiculous, and you it's know, and quirky. I think, yeah. and we we we've probably all had that relative who's gone a step too far oh, in yes. trying out something. You know, it's like I mean, you're from fucking Southern California. You of course have that. Um, <laughs> my my family is pretty. Uh, like kind of cool about stuff so that never happened but i've been in situations or i've heard stories of stuff like that so yes absolutely but i mean and then you know it's things like too for instance that whole weird dream she explains about at the beginning about kevin spacey's penis um the right you know and then how they have the um, and I, and I and I I like that again that the amusement comes from their dynamics with each other. So it's right. the fact that she's oversharing and he's repressed. So mm. it's like the characters are very very well defined. So it means that when um, the conflict very easily arises from how those two positions kind of jut up against each other and then you know yeah. and then it's i i think i like this whole thing too about like how for instance she had an affair and she's only too willing to tell everyone she had an affair whereas he's really awkward about it and holds it over her as this kind of like uh trump card um, I, I like how she says like i'll grant you a divorce and you can just tell people we had an affair and he's like you did have an affair yeah. and she's like yeah that's why i said you can you can say that he's like no and then he explains it to her and it's interesting i like what you said earlier it was the way that their relationship is set up is that it's about earning points right and when dennis leary first gets introduced to them and he's in the car and he's taking them hostage one of the things that i thought was so interesting is they're they're taken hostage and they're still trying to win the argument with each other and it's like you got a gun pointed at you but all you care about is winning was it a stop sign or no did you see the see the stop sign or didn't you see the stop sign like they it's, have it's interesting to win. then because that's brought back when Dennis Leary like kicks them over puts a gun to their face and he goes did you see a stop sign? Yeah, and, and at he... first, well, and it's great because he calls her out. She's like, you're lying. You're a liar. And then he looks, and then Kevin Spacey kind of scoffs, like, ha, I win. And then he points at him, and he's like, did you see the stop sign? He's like, you're a liar, too. He doesn't say it, but it's implied, and that's what's great about it. But I think that's the funny thing about it is, like, when – is, like, in this sort of office, they get to kind of indulge in all of their kind of uh, – their resentments towards each other and try and sort of uh, uh, keep these facades where they get to be the put upon victim and that the other person is always wrong. Whereas right. when Dennis Leary has a gun pointed at their face, it's just cut through the bullshit and no, this is the black, the simple black and white of it, which is interesting because again, that's kind of the, I think that's what sort of um, the screenwriter said was kind of his inspiration is kind of like if you were having this argument with your wife, wouldn't you kind of wouldn't it be great if there was somebody who was there who could basically force you to have to, 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 to say the truth? 
Yeah. Yeah. Who could basically rule on everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, it's, I was trying to think, like trying to take a step back and think conceptually, what is Dennis Leary? Is Dennis Leary like this agent of chaos? He's, he's like an agent of truth. But it's like somehow he's like this agent. He just sows discord somehow. And I was trying to like thematically categorize him. And I know that that's not always important. And it's not always the most useful way of doing things. But sometimes it can be practically useful for a moment to just kind of kind of like jump well, into things. Well, there was this kind of like subgenre that kind of came out of the 80s, which is called the the um, oh, the yuppie in crisis or the yuppie in trouble kind of uh Subgenre and you know, things like culminates in seeking, American Beauty, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or you know, but like say something like Desperately Seeking Susan, yeah, or um, or uh, something wild, you know, or even say, even say something like Risky Business kind of like fit mm. into this idea of um, the person who's from suburbia who then this agent of chaos comes in and essentially affects their life, but usually for the positive. Um, mm. And it's usually a person from a lower socioeconomic background who is outside of the prism of this facade of suburban living, who essentially mm. forces them to cut through the bullshit of suburbia and, you know, deal with their problems very directly. And so mm. this kind of fits into that dynamic in the sense that it's yeah. somebody who isn't interested in all of the I mean, you know, you, you see this theme of the sort of this disdain for suburbia and sort of white bread living in the way that mm. you also have the police chief who has to deal with these uh, fuckers from the town who are basically trying to tell him how to do his job. And then when he says, Oh, you know, fuck off. They're like, well, you know, we're going to talk to the councilman and get you fired. And, you know, so th there's this clear mm. dis and I mean, the fact too, that I, mean, I don't know, I've never been to Connecticut, but films would lead me to believe that Connecticut is the whitest place on earth because like everything, everything always kind of like really waspish and, uh, kind of like, um, uh, fussy and high class is always set in Connecticut. Yeah. I mean, cause that's the, that's the stereotype, right? Is that you get the rich people who live, I mean, who work in New York, but then they have their house in Connecticut or they were raised in Connecticut. They went to boarding school in Connecticut. So well, there's no accident. I'm sure it's not like that runs across the an board, antique but. store as well. It's <laughs> yeah, a very right. kind of like right. white bread. It's like you couldn't pick a more kind of white bread type of business to run. Yeah. I mean, just watch Gilmore Girls, you know, Stars Hollow. That's in Connecticut. Okay. Well, and there's this very, there's also this very um, distinct idea too of how these people were formerly New Yorkers at some point that they had right. lived some kind of slightly more um, countercultural or more yeah. kind of like uh, free lifestyle. And then there's that bit too where he says like, you know, we had this argument while we were smoking a joint, and then you know, and then Christine Barinsky sort of freaks out because he's mentioned that they were smoke with that where they were smoking drugs, and right. uh, and so yeah, again, you get the idea that these people have um, have reformed into this kind of more buttoned up world and aren't completely one hat and aren't and that's part of where the conflict and problem has come in is that they've reformed into these more white bread suburban people mm, yeah and I think I really like that element like I like the idea that as one who grew up in the suburbs who was inundated with just what's sometimes referred to as the simulacra, right? The image of the image, the reproduction of the image, the something that is the pure fabricated superficial surface bullshit um, that, that sort of characterizes uh, 
suburban life, you know, the cookie cutter house and everyone has the same type of car and everyone takes their kid to AYSO soccer games on the weekends and everyone's trying to, you know, work in real estate or work in finance or something like that, right? Um, and all the dads are having affairs and all the housewives are drinking martinis and you get the real housewives of Orange County shit. That, that it's nice to have something cut through that and sort of like disrupt that image that disrupts the you called it a facade earlier and i like that to, to disrupts that facade that um of everyone trying to live according to decorum and you don't say certain things and you don't do certain things you don't smoke weed and you don't talk about your divorce and and you don't fight in front of people or you don't mention things to the in-laws or they don't mention things to you and then this dude comes in and it's just like no fuck you guys man let's be real with a capital r you know and well, so you I, get I like confronted the fact with too that what I like the fact, too, that the film really works to try and not let either one of them off the hook on this as well, because yeah. it's kind of, and you know, and it's interesting, this whole thing that it comes down to where that they kind of disagree on, which is this idea of who made this decision to move to suburbia. And it's like mm. kind of like this idea of she and they get to this point where it's kind of like he was the one who made the decision in the sense that he said, OK, we'll do this. But it was kind of like her who left him to make that decision. And mm. so it's kind of like so it's kind of that thing where they are both a little bit at fault and they need to be able to realize that they're both at fault for the problems that they have in this marriage. That is not mm. just one or the other. And I think the way that the film kind of deals with this idea that people need to just throw all their shit in just 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 get all their shit out and sort of dump it out and deal with it is mm. is is quite interesting yeah and it culminates nicely in that scene where finally judy davis's resentment comes out about how he was a quitter and that that so they have this restaurant that they open and the restaurant sort of gets some bad reviews and it, it deals with some hardship and then they sort of quit and then they end up moving to the suburbs but there's this resentment that's been built up and that really it wasn't about moving to the suburbs. That was that was an effect. That was a symptom of the real issue. The real issue was that Judy Davis felt that Kevin Spacey didn't have resolve, that he didn't have strength, that he was weak, that he had relinquished power somehow. And and that built up and that all of these other effects and symptomatic sort of things that arose that arose from that that's what really causes the tension from her side at least you know now he has his own grievances and those things do come out but i thought that was really lovely and it was really touching and it was really kind of powerful the way that they they dealt with that build up and then how that kind of kind of obviously blows up at the at the dinner party <laughs> see and it's it's interesting too because you know again we were talking about the cast i think like Judy Davis is a really good actress, and it's she's sort of gone missing. In, yeah, you know, I was in thinking the, that. Where the fuck has she been, man? And she's she great. Had, she kind of had this big, like she sort of started off in the um, in the sort of Australian sort of uh, high end, you know, you know, world where okay. you know she was in things like uh, My Brilliant Career, um, and then you know she was in Passage to India, um, and then kind of like she kind of had this four or five years in Hollywood where she was like doing a lot of big things. Like she was in Barton Fink, Husbands and Wives. Um, she's in this really weird Australian movie that I caught late night on TV one time where she's this woman who has, a, she's this woman who's the, who 
who's like obsessed with communism in back in like the 50s she's an australian woman and she goes on like a trip to russia and has an affair with stalin and uh <laughs> then ends up having an illegitimate child with him that's awesome and it's yeah, called she... uh, children of the revolution I kind of want to see that. Um, and she got some serious award love, too, like Golden Globes, Emmys, Academy Award nomination, maybe? Uh, she got and she got nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Husband and Wives. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that was 80s, 90s? Yeah, and she was kind of like, yeah. you know, for like a good 10, 15 years of her career, like pretty much if you look at her... If you look at her filmography, she's getting nominated in some sort of form for anything she's in. I mean, even if it's just the Australian Film Institute, yeah. she's getting nominated for everything for everything well, she's in. You can and see. Then, I mean, she's you know, really solid. But the solid. weird thing is, like, the first thing I ever saw her in was a film called uh, "The Man Who Sued God," which is this weird Billy Connolly comedy set in Australia, mm. which is not very good. But you know, it's kind of. It kind of seemed by that point that her career was kind of done. And so occasionally she pops up here and there in sort of odd supporting roles. Like she was, um, she played Heather Hopper in um, the miniseries of Feud uh, that came out. Oh, I which, never saw uh, it. I heard about it, but I never saw it. Uh, Feud was great. I loved it. But then again, I'm really attuned to that kind of like old Hollywood style right. of. You know, she's got she's stuff. got like an old Hollywood name too, Judy mm. Davis. Like for yeah. some reason, I, I feel like if someone was like, "Hey, do you know who Judy Davis is?" I'd be like, "Oh yeah, wasn't she a starlet in the '30s or '40s?" It's also weirdly <laughs> anonymous at the same time. Like if you right? say Judy Davis, I'm not sure necessarily people would mean, "Oh yeah, it's that person," because it's such a kind of general name. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I. I I think the first thing that actually struck me within the first five minutes, even I was like, Oh my God, she's fantastic. I mean, the first thing that caught me was that the acting was amazing. Like that opening scene with them in the therapist office. I was like, okay, so we're about to get some like high quality. And I was not expecting that. I thought it was going to be kind of a little cheesy and maybe a little silly, you know? And of course I had just watched just friends, which we'll get to in a minute, which I was like, Oh, it's going to be like cheesy and kind of like, eh, kind of like trying to be funny, but it wasn't. And I was like, Oh my God, what happened to her? Like, Judy Davis, she's she's really, really good. Also, you know, Kent, weirdly, we were talking about this, um, you know, with J.K. Simmons, but I'm also kind of like, was Kevin Spacey ever young? Like, no, he's I, been I don't old remember him ever, ever being, like, him. younger than a middle-aged man. Like, <laughs> Isn't that weird when you yeah. find, like, people where you're like, they were old when I was a kid, and now we're talking, like, 25 years later, they're still, like, the same? They still look the same? I, I don't know. I know. I don't know. But I will say this, like it's hard to i'm wrestling with this within myself is how are we supposed to consume media of these figures that are so maligned now right like like i want to watch i love you daddy because i had a friend watch it and he actually said it was really good so I, how i think it looks i i thought it looked awful before like i even before i even knew about the louis ck thing so i have to say i i think it it and i'm i'm really not part of this whole cult of louis louis ck i think louis is fine i think it's way overpraised you it's know? less about the infraction to me or about the crime to me than it is about how the person has been maligned and the sort of cultural guilt that kind of emerges if for for myself when i watch Kevin Spacey or when I watch Jeremy Piven or when I watch a Harvey Weinstein film or it's, it's if I weird... were to watch I Love You Did and and that came up a lot actually as I was watching this. It's a weird one too because I don't know where particularly to draw the line on these things. It's like and I think right. like 
So, for instance, like, I would never watch something with Bill Cosby, but then again, I didn't really watch Bill Cosby stuff to begin with, and I don't really feel like I'm missing out because right. it's not like I, I didn't really grow up watching the Cosby show, so that show doesn't really hold an importance to me. Bill, most All of Bill Cosby's movies are kind of shitty, so it's not like there's anything that I was like, I'm missing out on there. Right. Whereas, like, you know, me and Alex watched, um, rewatched uh, Rosemary's Baby about two months ago, and, you know... Uh, Roman Polanski is kind of a piece of shit. You know, he's like, you know, yeah. I mean, even if you want to take out the, the, the very, the very public thing that everyone knows about him with the, um, that he fled the country for, I mean, you know, he's, his behavior, he's been a serial philanderer and a really fucking shitty human being and quite happy to just admit it and talk about it in interviews. Like he's just not a, he's a self-involved and not a very nice person, you know? So, I mean, and I don't know, I think in a weird way, it's like I can watch Rosemary's Baby and I can watch Chinatown. I think if a new Roman Polanski film came out, it would sort of color whether I really wanted to go see it or not. Well, didn't was it, was uh, he he did one recently? Not Carnage. Um, Carnage was a while ago. Carnage, I think, was still like about like four years ago or something. So like. okay, okay, yeah. So and because we're not in the same cultural moment, it's not quite yeah. as sensitive. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But I mean, were you able to enjoy Carnage? I didn't think it was a very good movie to begin with, so it wasn't okay. like um, yeah. I mildly liked the ghost, but it still wasn't great. I mean, I, also I'm kind of like I'm actually not sure Roman Polanski is as good a filmmaker as everyone thinks he is. I think he's, I think he's he's had some very good scripts and he's stylish enough that it kind of like. Yeah. But I, I actually think if you look at his filmography at a, as a whole, I'm not sure how great it is. Um, right. Well, I think we would agree no matter what that Kevin Spacey is a fantastic actor and yeah like uh, does this mean that i can never watch that i can never watch seven again i will say this it's weird for some reason watching this i was less offended than uh watching house of cards i tried to watch i uh i I tried to watch an episode of house of cards and i actually was like i was actually a little bit repulsed whereas watching this because he's kind of just a cog in this whereas like he within house of cards he is it's really about him and his performance. Whereas like this film, he's one of a kind of ensemble of people. Maybe. And maybe it's because his character is so, I mean, his character's not, a, he's not nice obviously in this, but he's so disgusting in house of cards that, that maybe I'm kind of like, Ugh, I, I felt like the real stories were like oozing out of Frank's voice. Whereas in this film, for some reason I watched it and initially I thought this is going to be interesting. You know, I because I, when I first started up, I, I obviously knew that Kevin Spacey was in it. But again, I, I was thinking Dennis Leary, and then it wasn't until I saw Kevin Spacey's face that I was like, okay, now it's real. Now I now I'm gonna watch a Kevin Spacey film in light of the cultural moment, and how's it gonna be? And it didn't actually detract from my viewing experience, and it was really an interesting experience to then think about why it didn't. Like, it, it, I was aware of it for a moment, and then I kind of got into the movie. Well, I really kind of, I mean, the main thing is that I really hope that it doesn't turn out J.K. Simmons is an asshole. Oh, please. Please, J.K. That's going to ruin Spider-Man and La La Land. Here's here's an interesting (laughs) thing. And Whiplash. Here's an interesting thing. Um, Also, apparently, um, this film had a completely different ending originally. Originally, apparently, um, uh, Ken... uh, Dennis Leary turns himself into the cops at the end to sort of prove to the son that kind of like a life of crime isn't what he should be <laughs> pursuing. But apparently test audiences fucking hated it. So they reshot the ending so that he gets away. 
so it's interesting. I uh, I didn't love the ending, and that would be there. There are two criticisms that like primary criticisms. One, I didn't love the subplot actually with J.K. Simmons and the kid. Uh, I just thought, even though I love J.K. Simmons, I just thought it was kind of. Well, in the it's service a, it's a very the... light touch of J.K. Simmons you get in this. You don't get like – you don't get full-on J.K. Simmons. Right. It's diet J.K. Simmons. Yeah, and I think for some reason that subplot didn't really serve too much or it didn't serve enough to like flesh out the character of the kid. And it didn't really serve enough to sort of like buttress the the, the A plot point. So it, I didn't love it. I didn't love it. I get it. I know, I know why they had to do it, but I didn't love that. And then I didn't love the subplot necessarily with like the police station. Some of it I liked. Like I liked the police chief dealing with – with, uh, with the kind of community, but like, I didn't love all of the, the actors uh, of like the police officers and shit like that. Like I thought that was kind of weak, like when they were in the station at least, but, but I get why it was there it, and it did serve for the overall plot, but I just didn't love it. But the ending for me, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, that's kind of lame. Like I was hoping it was going to have like maybe like a bigger finale, like maybe something a little bit more dramatic than, oh, they just get away on a boat and they're laughing and, you know, he dressed up like Santa Claus to get away and the kid helped him. Like for some reason I thought it was a little bit lackluster, but then at the same time I try to think, well, what would I prefer? And when you just said that there was an alternate ending, I don't like that ending either. No, no, no. <laughs> well, and also too, I like, I like the fact that the climax really is about the couple airing their grievances with each other and kind of like trying to realize how they could be better people. Yeah. I, I, I like that. And yeah. actually that's yeah, the thing too. is like, because it, it makes you realize that Dennis Leary's character is actually very simple. His job is really to essentially affect change within the couple. Essentially Dennis Leary is the manic pixie dream girl of this movie. His, yeah. his job is purely to come in and make this couple a better person. Yeah, um, no, I, I, that's exactly right. That's exactly um, so right. So I kind of like I kind of don't mind the kind of the end. I mean, actually, I would say my biggest problem with this whole movie really is just that I find the whole conceit of that the the weird thing with the trap door and this weird constant running <laughs> joke of how he smells like cat piss because this yeah, safe had stupid. some nozzle that would spray you with cat piss. I found yeah. so peculiar and just yeah. so weird that I would just, that that element of things never made any sense to me. And and but the I, joke the joke how it kept came up didn't it wasn't funny to me like when the little when the kid when the teenager comes home and he's got a fucking gun to his head and he's being tied up but he has time to crack a joke about what's what's that what smells like piss like ah i just i just thought that that was too try hard yeah that was that was that, weirdly i feel sometimes when this film tries too hard to be funny it's not as amusing as when it's just kind of relying on its more character observation agreed you know points um and just like also i actually think too this film is directed incredibly simply i, I was I, I was i thought the same thing it has a sort of very workmanlike feel to it i think um yeah. I, I i wouldn't say i think ted Demme is a particularly great filmmaker i think his uncle you know jonathan was jonathan, a much better yeah. filmmaker um though of course like the thing with ted Demme is he had kind of a tragic death and you know he uh yeah, he collapsed during a celebrity basketball game and died of a heart attack. It, it was related to uh, heavy use of cocaine. Oh, God, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, um, yeah, so he died in 2002. Oh, damn, uh, he was young then. Yeah, he was only uh, 38 when he died. Oh, my gosh, so young. Yeah, so, like, he, he was, um, you know, so, I mean, it's like, and, like, again, I think he was kind of one of these 
wonderkind type directors because he must have only been about like 28 or 27 when he directed this Um, and I think again I think he's probably one of these guys who kind of found his niche he did he ended up getting in with this kind of yo MTV raps thing and blew up and then he managed to capitalize off of the back of it off of the fact that he was this that you know this uh white guy who could like relate to the urban culture (laughs) right 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 yeah, no, I, I was actually really glad that you that you chose this film because we we chose two sort of like offbeat Christmas films. And yeah, let's, let's, what, 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 how do how do you think this relates to the Christmas theme? Because we haven't really because ta- we haven't really talked about how this has anything to do with Christmas. I mean, it's not explicit, right? Like there are certain Christmas films, like the Santa Claus and shit like that, that are explicitly Christmas stories. This is a story that takes place during Christmas time. Yeah, so it Christmas uses Christmas, is Christmas more as a framing device than the actual. Than, than really yeah. what the film's main thing is about. And I kind of really want to see more films like that. Like more yeah. films that take place around Easter time, but they're not about Easter. Or around Thanksgiving time, but it's not about the Thanksgiving meal. I think we need some more Hanukkah or... films, because seriously, there's like no Hanukkah films. It's like actually, it's a little bit depressing how few Hanukkah films there Let's, are. I, I'm surprised too, with as many sort of like powerful Jewish people that are producing films and, yeah, and writing it's movies. Yeah, shocking. <laughs> Like, can you name a Hanukkah film off the top of your head? But here, here's the way you could do it. You can't make a Hanukkah film because I think the niche audience uh, wouldn't bring in enough revenue. But you could make a film that takes place during Hanukkah, and it could be like a Seth Rogen film, right? Like, even Seth Rogen did a fucking Christmas movie. Like, come on, man. Which do actually, a, a I'm just going to throw it out there, is actually not that bad. It's actually – it's 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 quite decent. <sighs> I kind of liked it. Uh, did you? Yeah. Michael Shannon as a drug dealer who turns into an angel. It was like, I was, yeah. I was, I was, I was that was pretty that. good. That was pretty good. Um, but yeah, I mean, you would think that they could do something where Hanukkah is the backdrop. I, I like this idea where it's the backdrop and it doesn't, cause, cause it can be a little cheesy and like how many Medea Christmas films can we make? Right. Or, well, and, I, and I think actually the thing with the ref here is that it gives an excuse for the family to be brought together right. to for sparks to fly. Like you kind yeah. of feel like if they didn't need this conceit of bringing the family together, it wouldn't necessarily be said at Christmas. Yeah. And I mean, what's, what's the common thing that's said anyway, it's like holiday can be like the most like elated time, but it can also be a time of like serious tension because the in-laws come and all this stuff. So this film capitalizes on, the sort of cultural idea in the West that that Christmas brings with it a certain level of familial tension. Well, and I also think the thing too about Christmas is it creates this really weird dynamic for a couple of days where there's a lot of things that are shut down. People are kind of off doing their own thing. It's kind of like the way that we traditionally think of the world in, on a normal basis kind of gets disrupted for a couple of days. Mm. So this kind of way that then, you know, there's going to be, I, I think it creates an odd atmosphere a lot of the time, Christmas. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I actually, I like the way that it was handled. Oh, well, let's, um, let's see if I like the way your film was handled. <laughs> Segway! Music producer Chris Brander has it all. I saw you flirting with me out there. How did you do that to your boyfriend? We were just friends. <gasps> but in high school, things were a little different. You mean more to me than anyone in this whole world. Really? I love you, Chris. Like a brother. Hmm? We're friends, right? Shut up! Just leave him alone! 
Oh my God! Ten years later, touring with the world's hottest pop star. God, I want to lick your skin off. We'll take him home for the holidays. Hi, Mom. <laughs> this is my brother, Mike. You're hot. I know, I know. <laughs> now, when he sees the girl he never forgot... Jamie? He's going to get a second chance. Oh, my God. I can put my arms around you. <laughs> to win his first love. Wow, Chris. Jamie Palomino. But it's going to be a lot harder. We're going to be more than just friends. Bob! I need my skates to show off my talents. You're a lot better than before. Than he ever thought. I'm sorry, okay? What a pipe car! Don't worry, Chris, you're gonna be fine. Uh, ah! Jamie Palomino. Dusty Dinkelman? Uh. I can't compete with this guy. You see him play that guitar? It's like he has 15 fingers. Nice outfit, by the way. Rock and roll. That is so cute! I just wanna eat you both up! Line Cinema presents. Not the same person I was in high school, pal. You always be fat to me, Chris. Ah! Ryan Reynolds, Amy Smart, Anna Ferris, and Chris Klein. How'd the big date go? It was terrible. I went in for a kiss, but she wants a hug. Then I get caught in a sort of kiss hug limbo type thing. You gave her a body shake? <laughs> Just Friends. Just Friends stars Ryan Reynolds, Anna Ferris, Amy Smart, and uh, Chris Klein. And it's basically the story of Chris Brander, who is a nerdy, overweight, unpopular teenager who is best friends with um, Amy Smart. And uh, she's like the hot cheerleader girl, but they're, uh, they're just BFFs. And anyway, he gets mocked and made fun of, and he resolves himself to move away from that shitty town in New Jersey. So he moves to the coast, to Los Angeles, and he becomes a powerful record executive. And uh, one day, his boss calls him in and says that he wants him, who I said was Rip Torn, by the way, last week. And I, I, I in my mind, I thought it was Rip Torn, but no, it's, a, it's, Stephen it's, Root. Not, it's Stephen Root. Yeah, who yeah. I actually, in my mind, I confuse them because they kind of look alike. He is kind of dressed like Rip Torn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but he's way goofier and uh, kind of sillier. But anyway, his boss calls him in and says that he wants him to court the new hot pop star, played by Anna Ferris to come over to their record label so that they can get her new album. And it turns out that uh, that Ryan Reynolds' character had a previous, like, sort of affair. I mean, they went on a date, and I guess she's kind of crazy, with, uh, with Anna Ferris's character. Her name's Samantha James. And um, so he has to go and kind of court her. So he goes to court her to try to get her to come over and join the record label. But she's crazy as fuck, and um, she kind of, like, attacks him, and she invites him to go to, what is it, Paris? Paris, or whatever. they're supposed to be flying to Paris. Yeah, they're supposed to go to Paris, and so uh, he agrees to go with her to Paris so that, again, he can get her business. And while they're in the air, she decides to microwave uh, her lunch, but in the aluminum foil, and it causes a fire on the plane, so the plane has to land, and of course, where does it land? It lands in New Jersey, and it lands near Chris Brander's old hometown, so he decides, because they have a night layover, to go and visit his family, who apparently he hasn't been back to see them in New Jersey, at least, in like 10 years. I guess he's yeah, just been flown, flying them out they, to he LA. Said they, they, he said that they'd been, yeah. he'd flown them out to LA, but, but they, he hadn't and been so, back to New Jersey. And so this is his first time back, and he goes into the house, and he has to bring Samantha James with him, who is kind of like this ritzy... Uh, 
self-important L.A. star who goes to this small town in Jersey. Um, and uh, She's then, supposed to be a Paris Hilton type is kind of apparently yeah. what I was told. Paris Hilton, kind of like Britney Spears, bubblegum pop thing, but like But like super she's supposed to be a socialite who's like decided she wants to be a musician rather than like someone who is like an actual musician. And you hear that when she tries to sing because she's terrible at singing. Uh, except at the end, she has a little turn when she gets dark and then she can sing all of a sudden. But anyway, um, so then Chris is thrown back into this town where he was once a, once a laughingstock, but now he's like a hero and he runs into his old – his old crush, um, who's a teacher and working part-time at a bar, and he tries to resolve that he is going to get her. He's going to kind of win her back somehow. He's going to bang her, right, to get that anger bang, the revenge bang. But whenever he's around her, he kind of gets all nerdy, and so it turns into a comedy of errors, and he keeps fucking up, and he can't do it. And then he tries to be cool and play aloof, but then that doesn't work either. And so he has to learn how to just find that old true self that he was before he went to L.A. and became an L.A. douchebag. And then at the end, he gets the girl. So what do you think, Kier? <laughs> so here's, here's the thing with this film is, like... So, so it, 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 it stick. Do you want to, do you want to explain the central conceit of the idea of the friend zone? Because this is, this film yeah. is obsessed with the concept of the friend zone. Yeah. So the film is called just friends. The idea is that, um, Chris Brander, Ryan Reynolds character had been placed in the friend zone since they were like kids, right? With this girl. And that, uh, as, as he even says at one point that he became a non-sexual entity, um, like a lamp. <laughs> and, uh, and so the idea is, is that he now is jaded and he will never become friends with a girl, um, in, in the way that he did before. It's all about making sure that you sort of circumvent that, that zone of determinacy that means that you are no longer a sexual entity and making sure that you do everything that you do simply to, to circumvent that that terrible realm of limbo where you're never going to get laid. So he's he's telling his friend at one point that here are some things that you do um, to make sure that you're not in the friend zone. Don't have a day date and make sure you kiss her at the end because friends don't kiss. Um, that guys that are like kind of like trying hard to be friendly with girls, they're stuck in the friend zone. So there's a bit where the guy is ice skating with this girl and the friend thinks and, – and, and Chris Brander, Ryan Reynolds' friend is like, oh, look at that couple. And Ryan Reynolds is like, no, trust me, they're not a couple. He wishes they were a couple. But then she doesn't obviously. And then of course the girl comes up and hits on Ryan Reynolds a little bit later and he's like, oh, see? And she even says, oh, we're just friends. So it's this idea that you're trying to not be stuck in that zone of non-sexual relations. And um, and he was in that zone. And he says, like, a girl even effed me up real bad when I was in high school. And he's talking about Amy Smart's character, which for some reason I can't remember her name right now. What the fuck is her name? Amy Smart's uh, Jamie. Jamie, thank you. Yeah, you Jamie know, Palomino. Jamie smiles. Jamie, yeah, Jamie Palomino. I know this. I've, I've seen this movie so much, but for some reason her name was slipping my mind. But yeah, so then he has to kind of like – break free from the friend zone but the problem is is he's stuck he's stuck in it so so here's here's the thing right i kind of like this movie um i kind of feel bad that i like this movie though it's like because <laughs> i saw this film for the first time uh when i was in australia like it was just like because when i was in australia i had like a lot of time to kill um right yeah you because know, i was just like hanging out working at like a hostel stuff like that so i go to the movies a lot and this is just one of those movies. I was like, I like Ryan Reynolds. I'll go see a dumb comedy with Ryan Reynolds in it. Yeah. And I, and I kind of liked it. Um, and it, it's interesting. The thing that struck me now is because of 
where we are at the moment in terms of uh, sexual harassment and this idea of kind of the, the Me Too campaign is I think we're very much at a point where people are not very attuned to people. There's a very big pushback on this idea of the friend zone and the idea of uh, a woman being a tease and like, mm. and I, and I think the interesting thing about this movie is that it sets it up as this comic scenario, obviously of this this idea of, and it's it's this weird point where it's kind of it's not quite a romantic comedy and it's not quite like a frat boy comedy. It's in this weird <laughs> kind of middle ground. And it can't quite figure out what it's trying to do. And then it ends up with this weird third act where I think the film also doesn't quite know morally where it falls on this idea of the friend zone. (laughs) And it can't quite figure out if Chris Brander is a terrible person for having expected any kind of relationship to have ever developed. Because you get into that weird thing where Amy Smart is kind of like... You know, why why are you behaving this just because I wouldn't fuck you in high school, you know? Yeah, she's um, like, get over yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and it's – but at the same time, it's like you're – it still very much sets up this idea of Chris Brander as this guy who was really hard done by by his high school experience and has kind of remade himself over. And I can't quite figure out where this movie falls on any of this. I can't – I think its yeah. third act is so muddled morally with what it kind of feels about – it, that it kind of just tries to manufacture a kind of easy romantic comedy happy ending. Right. But I don't think it ever really – because also then it, it weirdly also sets up this whole point where Jamie actually is into him and kind of tries to hook up with him and then he's too scared to make a move. Well, let me, then, let me offer, let me offer a, a possible suggestion. And, and it's, I'm not saying it executes it perfectly, but maybe this is – the way that it was trying to do it. Yeah, okay. That you have Chris Klein's character, Dusty, yeah. Dusty Dinkelman or Dusty Lee, who he he even says at one point that, oh, we, we're getting her back. We're, we're going to go for the anger bang sort of thing just because we're going to get her back for putting us in the friend zone all these years. And even though Chris Brander's like, oh, you wish you were in the friend zone. Like you weren't even in the friend zone. The idea is, is that maybe the the revenge idea uh, that, that you're responding to that is so sort of um, – potent because of the cultural moment now is best represented by the Dusty Dinkelman character. He just wants the anger bang. He's mad and resentful because he well, didn't almost like, fuck her. Yeah, it's almost like his character almost allows us to be more forgiving towards yes. Chris Brander's character. But well, and the reason, but but the reason, and this is important, I think, because Chris Brander didn't just want to fuck her. So he didn't feel entitled to her body, which is the issue. He actually loved her, and he's been in love with her forever. And he and he and and I'm not saying it's successful, but I think this is why. And you said it perfectly. This is why we're able to feel or to empathize with Chris Brander because we realize that he genuinely does actually love her. He he was jacked up. He got fucked up, not because he felt entitled to her body, but because he felt like. Like he clearly was putting himself out there. He was he clearly like was like, listen, I I love you. And he even said at one point that he loves her, and and he wrote that big sentimental thing in the yearbook. And she kind of still doesn't get it. So I think that I think that allows us to kind of circumvent the sort of criticism of the cultural moment. But also, I think at the same time though, there has been this whole pushback on this concept of the quote unquote nice guy, you know. And I think there is yeah. in theory. This could fit into this concept of, you know, the guy who's, you know, kind of being a little bit creepy in the sense that he's hanging around trying to be a friend, but only because he secretly wants to be with her. 
And so it's kind of yeah. like I, I don't know. It's 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 a weird one because ultimately I don't think the film is actually taking much of this very seriously or really trying to. And, no, I, and I think no, almost no. trying to read too much into it is to uh, give this film more credit than what it's actually trying to do. <laughs> I just it was a weird thing where I kind of I've, I've seen this film a bunch because it's a film that I have switched on occasionally when I just want to put something on stupid on in the background. And it right. was this thing where I was like. I was suddenly sort of thinking, I'm not sure you would see this film being made now. It, and it's weird because it's only like mm. 10 years old, but it feels very dated in terms mm. of um, some of its sexual politics. Um, and I think I think one of the things that helps with it is the fact that I think everyone in it is kind of an asshole. Like there's like like <laughs> nobody's very good. Like Amy Smart is kind of, you know, this sort of slightly too nice, too good, too perfect girl. Mm-hmm. Um they try to give her a little bit of like melancholy in the sense that she's like this girl who's still living with her parents and she's just, she wants to, but you know, she still wants to be a teacher and teach children and you know, right. and all, all that sort of stuff. Meanwhile, you know, but like Anna Ferris is kind of a terrible person. Chris Klein's a terrible person. Ryan Reynolds is kind of a terrible person. Yeah. Uh, um, his brother is a terrible person. His brother's awful. His brother's like really kind of <laughs> rapey, which is yeah. funny too because also – but it's it's interesting because I'm really fascinated because um, next year we're going to be doing an episode on The Girl Next Door. Yeah. Which is a, which is a film that I think – you know, comes out of a fairly similar-ish time, and it's going to be really fascinating to see how the sexual politics of that film feel now, because yeah. that was a film that I thought was very clever in the way that it navigated around some of the more problematic elements potentially of that of that of that concept. And uh, the guy that plays the brother in this plays Eli. Yeah, which is again, which is quite funny. Yeah, who who I actually uh, we can talk about this more at the time. Who I lost uh, out to in uh, the role actually oh, well, there you in go. the girl next door. But uh, well, we'll we'll talk about that when we actually do the girl next door. Yes, but, we will. And I mean, I actually said we'll say part of the fun. The thing that I really like about this movie is that I love the dynamic between uh, Ryan Reynolds and Christopher Marquette, uh, who yeah. plays the brother. Is like I love that they're just serially abusing <laughs> each other. And, and then and then there's one bit where they're like, "I love you, I love you too." <laughs> but also, don't you don't you just isn't there something that you just kind of feel? When you when you look at Ryan Reynolds next to Christopher Marquette, you're like, if these two guys are supposed to be brothers, one seriously got fucked over in the genetic lottery. <laughs> yeah, and there's no dad, right? So yeah, there's no dad. you have no idea. The dad is gone, so it's, it's it's kind of just portrayed that it's a single mother. And yeah, you get Ryan Reynolds, who's tall, good looking, well built, and you get Chris Marquette, who's kind of shorter, a little bit scrawnier, and he's not uh, supermodel handsome. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. The one person who's actually really lovely, though, is the mom. Oh, yeah, but she's almost like, but that's the thing is, she's so, so lovely, she's completely dopey. That's yeah, the she's thing. super like... dim-witted, yeah. <laughs> I love the bit, so, when they come home for the first time, and Ryan Reynolds is there with, uh, with Anna Ferris with, uh, with Samantha James, and the brother's there, and, like, the brother comes in, and you think that, oh, this is going to be, like, a nice moment of reunion between the brothers, and he runs by Ryan Reynolds, smacks him in the face, and sits down next to this pop star, right? And he's like, oh, my God, is this my Christmas present or whatever? 
and uh, he's talking with her, and he's like, oh, I, I have your poster or whatever on my wall. And uh, the brother's like, you have your her poster on your wall? And he's like, yeah, I slapped the ham to it uh, just an hour ago. And the mom is like, what ham did you slap? Not the ham that we're using for dinner. And then Samantha James is like, oh, I'm on a paracoon diet. I can't do ham. Like, I need salmon, like, now. And then the mom starts talking about salmon. And then it's like, what the fuck is going on? And Ryan Reynolds' face is like, all right, this is crazy town. I got to get the fuck out of here. For some reason, that scene makes me laugh so hard. Well, the interesting thing, too, about this movie is it's also like there's this intense level of fantasy present in it in the sense that, you know, it is kind of that thing of everybody who was dorky in high school would wish that they could come back to come back to their hometown, look like Ryan Reynolds, be really rich and sort of like be able to, you know, famous. And then, you know, and as much as he's like dorky and can't make everything work with Amy smart, it's like, you still have like the jock who's like now bald and is like, Oh my God, I saw you on, uh, like the BT awards or whatever, you know, the Grammys. I saw the Grammys sitting next to P Diddy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, so it's, it's like that. It is that there's this intense level of kind of like of like fantasy in this film yeah. of, you know, kind of it's a re- it's a revenge fantasy. Yeah. And, I, you know, and it's it's like it's like this thing of, you know, it, but I, I think I think there is something interesting in this idea of how he he sets himself up originally to try and impress her by essentially being like, I'm a fucking baller. I'm going to play this super aloof. I'm going to treat you like all these models I date where I'm just kind of like, yeah, I, I got like a nice car. I'm a badass, And she's just not down for that. And then he kind of realizes that, Oh, well, she's not like, she's now deeper than she was in high school. She's not a high school girl anymore. I can't like be like, Oh, I'm a, uh, I'm a alpha male. It's like now she's like, you know, in her late twenties and she's kind of interested in something a little bit more substantial, somebody who's got a little bit more going on than just simply I'm cool, you know? And I think there's something interesting in that dynamic of the idea. He realizes that he has to change himself in order to, um, you know, his, his approach and actually try and be more honest and real with it. But obviously his counterweight that he does that is to be like super dorky and super like nerdy and then like invite her to the fucking notebook. But, you right. know, I, I, you know, again, I, I you know, I, I but like then that the, doesn't work either. No, exactly. Because yeah. he goes too far the other way and he's not just being real. And right. I suppose like the weird thing I will say is one, I think very early on you get this feeling that Amy Smart is like, holy fuck, you turned into Ryan Reynolds. You're hot as fuck. You know, I'm, right. I'm I, I'd, I'd be I'd be down a clown. But, you know. Right. But, you know, he keeps kind of fucking it up by constantly being um, – uh, you know, being a dork and uh, or you know doing something stupid, and it's 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 interesting too because there's so many films too where you see like the dorky guy who has to try and win over the girl who's way out of his league, who's just there to be. She's just beautiful, and she's you know, but she's not got any character to her whatsoever, and mm-hmm. he has to find a way to do it. I think there's something interesting in this dynamic of the guy looks like fucking Ryan Reynolds, you know. <laughs> So it's a little bit less like I'm a dorky guy who has to win you over. It's like it's almost like the dynamic is actually he has to find a way not to screw it up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I can be a bit critical, though, in this, I'm not sure the film is entirely successful at at really developing his moral center or his ethical fiber 
that makes the turn at the end Oh, no, legitimate. this third act is such a fucking mess. It does not like, know what it's trying to go for at all. Like, okay, so so his character is clearly set up at the outset that he's nice, he's friendly, he's kind of nerdy. We don't know if he's, like, super smart or whatever, but he's clearly, like, a nice guy. And then he spends ten years cultivating this persona of being a douchebag. And so then my question is this. If you spend ten years from 18 to 28, we'll say— kind of like stifling your niceness does that nice kernel still exist is that still you is that like the quote-unquote true you or have you habitually changed yourself and so then the the shift at the end where he's like authentic and he's like i want to marry you and i want to date you and i love you i've always loved you we're talking about a 10-year gap like he loved her when he was a teenager and he was a nice guy as a teenager. Is he still like, is he a nice guy? Well, this like, is where something does that come that from? I tend to always have this problem with this idea of you find the love of your life in high school. It's why I find high school romances in films very hard to buy into because I'm kind of right. like, it's, you know, it's even something I brought up with Call Me By Your Name, which was a film where I'm kind of like, you know, dude's 17. He's going to find another he's going to find somebody else. It's like, it's right. like, I, I find it hard to buy into this was this great love story. I'm like, he was a 17 year old kid. It's like, you know, so it's, right, it's exactly. like, it's like, I don't know. I think the thing that I wonder about that is that it feels weirdly, very honest to me, this idea that as a, you know, as this guy who spent 10 years with this, trying to get away from everything that he was as a, as this kind of dorky guy in high school that he would see it as some kind of great success for him to be able to uh, exercise these demons by coming back and banging this girl who uh, he felt kept him in the friend zone. So that, that makes some legitimate sense to me. Even if I think it's a nasty concept, I think it's actually, that makes sense to me. Right. I suppose what the film tries to do and I'm not sure it does it successfully, is that over the course of that period, he realizes that that love that he felt in high school, that she's still the same girl that he was actually in love with in high school. And now he's fallen back in love with her rather than just resenting her as this woman who Mm. he couldn't have when he was in high school. So I think that's what the film's trying to go for. But I think the third act is so muddled and it's so (laughs) all over the place. And it's so weird when you suddenly have this changeover to Amy Smart's perspective on things where suddenly she's like, oh, I tried to like give him a signal and he wouldn't come in for it. And I was kind of like, I don't. It's just it's such a weird turn because also and that's why I kind of say like Amy Smart, when she first looks at Ryan Reynolds, I mean, that girl looks thirsty as fuck. Like she's like she, you know, (laughs) and so that's kind of where you're like, I'm not totally sure I know where this film is trying to go with this dynamic a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. See, for some reason that bit didn't get me as much because I kind of get that, right? Like, like you say, she was thirsty. It's Ryan Reynolds. uh, So she's like, she's down for a little Hollywood romance. Ryan Reynolds keeps his shirt on this entire film, which is really surprising. I, I know. I know. It's like me doing a movie with my shirt on the entire time. I just don't think that that it doesn't exist, you know? There's like maybe one movie ever. Um, but no, um, I think, uh, you know, she's clearly thirsty. She wants a little holiday. holiday. I said Hollywood. I meant holiday romance. Like you can tell she's down for down for the clown. Is that what you said? Down for the yeah, clown? Yeah, she's down to clown. She's down to clown. Um, and then he fucks it up. 
because he gets all jumbled up. He falls back and it starts. And this is what I thought was actually a really subtle thing um, that I think is nice. Um, rather than him just fully explaining like, man, whenever I'm around or I just revert back to him in high school, he does say that at one point. But he says it, I think, in a, in a scene with his best friend, you know, uh, in the dentist office at one point. But he doesn't say like, man, I, I'm this way. He's not super like self-reflective, but he's just like angry, like, fuck, it's like I'm back in high school. I keep fucking up when I'm around her. Um, but what he says is, she initially says, like, let's hang out. Let's grab lunch tomorrow. And he immediately says, a day date. And this is just after two minutes earlier he had told his friend, you never go which, on a day date. Which I will say it's interesting because I will say I've always said this shit as well. Uh, you want to date a girl, don't fucking go out with her during the day. That's a terrible idea because it that's is. what friends do. Friends meet up for coffee during the day. Uh, you know, nothing good ever comes from that. You know, you need <laughs> – right. You, you know, so I mean, well, like, and, that, and and he says that explicitly, right? Yeah, he's like, yeah, he's like, because friends don't go out on dates in the day, you know, like you go out at night, and so she says a day date, and he, and this is the first time you see him reverting back to his nerdy self. He says great, but the way that he says great is with that high pitched nerdy tone of voice that he spoke with in high school. He's like great. And as soon as that happens, he's like a day date, great. And as soon as he says that, you're like, oh. This is a very subtle cue that he's going to kind of revert back to his nerd self. I think some of the things with this, though, is that I think I just really enjoy Ryan Reynolds as a screen presence. So it's Me even too. like when he's like in his garage, he's like, my snow globe collection. And he's just like <laughs> up to it. I laugh so hard at that. Yeah. Because I don't know what it is, but he's able to just transform his face into like going back into the goofy expression that he had yeah. as a high schooler. And it's so fucking funny. And so I think that's, I think that's a lot of it is like, you know, I think I find a lot of the people kind of like charming screen presences enough that it manages to. And I think I find the, their dynamic funny enough that I managed to get past a lot of the things that don't make sense to me about this movie. And I was Agreed. just flat out saying this isn't a good movie. No, you know? no. But it's a, it's, it's a mildly entertaining movie. It's the sort of thing right. that, again, like I said, I've probably watched about four or five times. And it's because I've just stuck it on in the background. And it's not really I don't want any. It's like me just like rewatching old episodes of friends or something like that. It's something that mm. I know what it is. It's mildly amusing. I know what I'm getting and I enjoy Ryan Reynolds. And I think he's got, you know, a nice enough chemistry with Amy smart. I don't think Amy smart's an amazing actress, but I think she works here for what she's right. got to do. I think Chris Klein has never been a good actor and I don't no. think this film does him any favors. Um, Cause especially when he launches into being like evil guy, that's like, it, it gets like it, it gets like super weird. It's just cheesy and over the top too. Well, it's kind of like oh, again too thing, try hard. I think the thing that's trying to play off too is like Chris Pine. I've got Chris Pine. Sorry, Chris Klein when he was coming off of American Pie and Election, like he was this doofus kind of earnest jock guy that was his kind of persona was that he was always like he's like oh yeah. I'm a jock yeah but like I've, deep down i've got like a heart and i care about <laughs> shit you know right and so and and i think it's trying to play off that and then try and be like 180 oh actually he's an asshole but it also right. feels about five years too late to really get any kind of mileage out of that persona because i feel mm. like when i watched this movie i hadn't seen chris klein in anything since rollerball Right, yeah. No, and to be honest, like, I'm okay with him not popping up on my screen too much in the future. Um, okay, but here's, here's the question, because you have put it down before on this podcast that you are not a fan of Anna Faris. So what was your feelings about Anna Faris in this film? Yeah, uh, 
I I'm still not a huge fan of hers. Um, I think that she makes me laugh in this movie. She's ridiculous. She's a little over the top for me. That that's the thing is I don't. I feel like there's a melody that a script or that a film, um, sort of sort of portrays right. And and if there's if there's a a note or two that's off, it just like really jars for me. And um, overacting, hammy acting can work if the melody of the film takes place within that sort of those parameters but if there's something that's like out of place like a person is being super over the top like chris klein is i think who's just kind of he just doesn't quite seem to fit even though i actually like him when he's in the high school dusty and he gets all angry like i thought that scene was actually well done but then it's a little over the top later right I think she well, it's, it's also interesting she, too that like that moment in the high school thing when uh, Ryan Reynolds is in the fat suit and Dusty comes through and he's playing the you can actually see like this moment where actually Chris Brander's kind of an asshole like even back then he's kind of uh, still an asshole a little bit yeah you know? he still has that quality to him yeah 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 you can see that um so if if we say that there's a melody that's been set, I think the Samantha James character fits within it a lot because it's already set up as being a little silly and a little goofy, right? So she she fits in it a little bit, but sometimes she just goes a little over the top and it doesn't do it for me. I mean, I, I still think she's a charming human. I just I don't like silly when it doesn't fit. Well, I think I think the one uh, thing about this film though is everything is so heightened, everything is so cartoonish that it's right. kind of like it's kind of not as bad. I mean, this film yeah, exactly. Where gets it allows tasered, gets a head right. injury and starts like eating toothpaste. That scene to me, I think that seems funny. Like when she's eating the toothpaste, I think that seems really funny. When she's like, "I'm a bubble," and she's got the toothpaste coming around, that's really. I think it's funny and it's kind of cute and she's endearing in a way. But sometimes she can try be a little too try hard. But, again. but it's, it's just funny. pushes too much. But it's funny what I'm, I mean to in the sense that this film kind of runs this weird. Um, this weird spectrum between trying to almost be like more like a romantic comedy and then also trying to be like a frat boy film. Cause like the whole thing yeah. where like, she's like, Oh, do you want to like give me a massage? And it's like, you know, it's like, it's again, it's like the dorky kid gets to massage the hot girl kind of yeah, thing. We're hoping, you know? we're hoping he's going to get laid. We're yeah. hoping. And it's like, and that feels very much like something out of, you know, animal house or even like, I mean, there's pretty much an exact scene like that in Van Wilder, you know, right. where like the Indian guy, you know, gets to massage the girl with the big fake boobs. Right, um, right, right. But then you have like this whole earnest ending where, you know, this whole time it was actually about like how much he was in love with Amy Smart that, you right. know, and he's like, oh, and I actually want to marry you and have babies. And and I'm kind of sitting there going like, so is she going to fly out to L.A.? Is he coming back to New Jersey? Like, how's this going to work out? I'm like, thinking, yeah, oh, like you haven't seen each other other in 10 years like how do you know you still love her like do you just love the image of her from when she was a teenager like i i don't know the ending but here's the thing as saccharine as sat and as sappy as it is for some reason it still kind of works for me and i think part of the reason it kind of works and this is actually a sort of like like real peripheral thing is because the soundtrack 
the soundtrack is actually like really kind of nice in serving the mood a lot of times. So at that moment, at the end, the song that's being under the that, that's kind of playing underneath it is a song by Rogue Wave called Eyes. And I think it's a really lovely, like nice, subtle indie kind of twee song. And then there's also a song earlier, I think it's by the Eels, that's really nice. So there's actually some really nice kind of like subtle indie music that serves those more emotional moments. And the the Eels song is when he's like sitting there looking through some old photographs and like reminiscing. And the song really seems to like emote a certain a certain level of sentimentality that kind of makes what's going on on screen work a little bit for me and 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 that was just for me um but i i, I kind of really like the way that see to me of, i feel like together. scenes like that feel very much like they're filler they feel like they need to be there because they're like oh well we need a, a moment alone contemplating things scene so just set him right. up there he can look at some pictures and uh we'll just buy a song uh that'll you know that we can play you're, under it. you're absolutely right and then I think maybe the reason, the only reason why it works then is because I like the song so much. I, I, if that I makes a, sense. I have a weird thing to bring up with this, which I'm, I'm okay. still don't know the answer to. Okay. Like, like it's weird when like Ashley Scott shows up as Jan, as like the nurse that he's like trying to bang Janice, you know? Yeah. yeah. And cause when like, Janice Ash, smiles, cause like Ashley Scott, <laughs> she's not like, miles. she's not like a, a huge name or anything, but like she was like an actress that was like, in leading roles and things at that time. Like she was like the lead, the female lead in walking tall, like the year before this, like she was like, she was like the second female lead in, in into the blue, like, and then she just shows yeah. up in this movie where she's like, not got any lines. And she's just literally the guy that I'm just, I'm just like, I'm trying to figure out, is it, is it that she had like, there were like deleted scenes that she was in or was she like in a relationship with somebody and just, this was yeah. showing up as some kind of like weird little cameo or something like that. Yeah, but It could have been, but it's just like, it's this weird moment where I'm kind of like, why is Ashley Scott in this movie? Well, it could be a couple things. Like, obviously, it could just be maybe she was, like, in a relationship or she was really good friends with somebody. And so they were like, hey, you want to come in and do this bit part for us? And she's like, yeah, fuck it. Sure, I'll, I'll do it. I'll take a little bit of money. Uh, it could also have been production delays, too. It could have been that they filmed this well before some of the other ones. Um, it, it could have been a bunch of things. Or maybe she signed on to do it. Like, maybe she did have some deleted scenes. It could be a bunch of different a bunch of different things. But, yeah, I noticed the same thing. Well, it's also, I noticed the same thing. It's weird, too, because – Roger Cumble, the guy who directed this, he has a really weird filmography. Because, what is it? Because literally he made he made Cruel Intentions, which yeah. is kind of like for people of our generation was kind of one of those big movies that came – that, you know, it was like everybody saw that like when it came out. Oh my uh, god, yeah. Uh, then he went on to make The Sweetest Thing, which was kind of a di- disaster. Is that Cameron Diaz? Cameron and Diaz, Selma Blair. Thomas Jane. And yeah, and Christina Applegate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the only thing I remember about that movie is the scene where Selma Blair is giving the guy a blowjob, yeah, and, and like her... his she gets caught on the penis ring yeah, or whatever. It was, it's interesting because <laughs> it's kind of an attempt to kind of make a frat boyish comedy, but with women. You know? Yeah, and all and older women too, like yeah. women who aren't they're like in their mid twenties now. Yeah, it was kind of like meant to be kind of like a female gross out comedy, which is kind of funny. It's almost like it's trying to do bridesmaids. You know, a good decade before Bridesmaids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, so he did that. What else did he do? Uh, then he made Just Friends, 
And then he yep. made a film called College Road Trip, which I don't think anybody remembers exists, but it had Martin Lawrence uh, in it. Um, and I don't think it's know. about him taking his kids to college, I'm guessing. Never even heard of it. Hilarity okay. ensues. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, you know, it's one of those ones like, are we there yet? You know, with like Ice Cube where it's yeah, like yeah. the black comedy, you know, that. Right, that's right. And then um, a movie called Furry Vengeance, which I actually think was a huge financial disaster. Oh, actually, no, I'm looking at it. It was fine. It made its money back. But it's basically Brendan Fraser gets, like, attacked by nature. Oh, yeah. I remember the commer- or the trailers for that. Yeah. It's, like, it's a weird filmography. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and again, I think, you know, much like The Ref, I think it's a very, very workmanlike piece of direction. It's, uh, there, there's, sure. There's, you know, everything looks fairly flat and samey all the way through. And I think, I again, mean, the film lives and dies on Ryan Reynolds charm. Like I think said. that's it. I think, you know, I think I do really do think I like this film a lot more than I would have if it wasn't for because of Ryan Reynolds. The same 100%. with like, same with Van Wilder. Van Wilder's not a good movie, but Ryan Reynolds is so kind of magnetic, magnetic. And you can, you can, you look at Ryan Reynolds and you're kind of like, it makes sense that that guy is a movie star. And this weird thing is people have spent over a decade trying to make Ryan Reynolds a movie star and it would kind of never mm. work. And then, I mean, literally, it didn't work until Deadpool. Like, he's never been a bankable name. You know, he's, you know, his his biggest successes have come from small comedies. So, I mean, even, like, this film made, like, 50 million, mm. which is fine. It made, a, some, it made a sort of small profit. But it's, like, that's kind of what that, you know, anytime you put Ryan Reynolds in a big thing, it didn't do well. Oh, you mean, like, global megastar? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to say, I kind of always thought he was a movie star. But I guess... But not like I mean, Green Lantern fell flat, obviously, and okay. But I mean, he was in like what Blade Trinity or whatever, yeah, and that he's made also, money. He's and not Amityville in that. Horror. It's the worst Blade film. It didn't do. I don't think it did particularly great box office wise. Amityville you know, Horror did well, didn't it? I think yeah, it did fine. But I don't think you would kind of like necessarily put that off the back of his name. I mean, it, that was nineteen. Uh, that was nineteen million uh, to make it. It uh, made one hundred and eight million. Yeah. I, I know what you mean, though. You're, you're right. Like, he has now kind of reached the stratospheric levels of, like, like when we think of the superstar, the Hollywood star, like the Tom Cruise back in the day and the Brad Pitt and the Will Smith, right? Like, like he's now at that level, whereas maybe before he wasn't. And I'm a huge fan of Buried. Like, I think Buried is, Me a, too. is, a, is, a, is a really quite incredible feat of filmmaking. Me too. Um, but, I mean, like, you look at him, too. He's also in a lot of high-profile disasters, like R.I.P.D., huge financial disaster. Yeah, big disaster, yeah. You know, um, uh, you know and he's, he's got such a weird scattergun, uh, scattergun filmography, and most of them are not very good movies. Like, you know, if you yeah. look at his hit rate, it's not very good. And then he's tried to do some more sort of like different like voices. Is that the name? Of yeah, the movie? and he's you know again he's yeah he's done these kind of indie films like, like the indie nine films right the nines uh, you know the voices. He kind of tried to do the romantic comedy thing for a bit with like yeah the, the proposition proposal. Or um, proposal proposal and yeah, yeah. Uh, you know definitely maybe you know but he's he's oh not, yeah definitely maybe it does yeah. feel like since Van Wilder you know people have spent over a decade trying to figure out what to do with Ryan Reynolds. Well, and I'll be honest, here, I, I think we've talked about this a few times, too, and I think he really suffers from the pretty boy syndrome, right? Which is, oh, oh darn, you know, he, he's too good looking. But I actually think that 
that we're, and it's actually really exciting. I was thinking this as I was watching this. We're at this stage where we're now going to be able to watch the next crop of like Dustin Hoffman's grow up. You know what I mean? Or the next, the, the, like when they're older, when they're in their 60s and their 70s and they're being respected for their acting awards. But I think we're seeing them now in their 30s and maybe early 40s now, 20s, 30s, 40s. And we've seen them since they were in their 20s, right? So you got guys like Chris Pine, Chris Evans, Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Gosling's obviously taken seriously sometimes. But you have these guys that I think are going to be around for a long time, you know, 20, 30 more years. And they're going to start to evolve into different types of actors as they move past their... They're sort of like casting as action stars or the rom-com guy or um, or the uh, or, or the comedic guy, right? You well, know, and so I think like that's the thing is too, like, and it's you, nice. I think Ryan Reynolds is one of those guys. Well, I think the thing is too with like so someone like Ryan Reynolds is he gets cast a lot. You know, he'll get cast a lot too in like earnest kind of like leading men roles, whereas like he's a funny guy. You know, I mean, and a, a guy who is you know, as good looking as him, who is also like a genuinely has great comic timing and is a great kind of improviser. It's not necessarily like something you find every day. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like, it's a little bit like too how people were kind of amazed when they found out Chris Hemsworth was funny. It's like, but I, Mm. I, I think even then I think Ryan Reynolds is a different kind of, I mean, I think like Ryan Reynolds genuinely did do, like a stand-up comedy at one point in his career. Like I think he is mm. like a I think he is a genuinely funny guy in and of himself. Yeah. No, I mean I I think so too. And then when you look at him in interviews and stuff like that and it is a, a strange combination to find a guy that's extremely good looking and charming but then at the same time who's got a humor that doesn't seem forced, you know? Like sometimes when I see Ryan Gosling in interviews, um, I, I think he's super charming in interviews and stuff like that. But um, I think that there's like this expectation that he's going to be like this brooding kind of guy. And you don't really get that. You get kind of like him being kind of kind of like funny and charming and silly. But I always wonder if he's holding back a little. Well, that's like if he's got a little guys... bit of like the cool guy syndrome. Well, that's the funny a thing is the bit. guys from Crazy Stupid Love who, who made Crazy Stupid Love, they said like they said like they genuinely got approached because Ryan Gosling really wanted to do comedy. Like that was that, yeah. that, you know, that, you know, it wasn't like somebody literally said to them, you know, who's really funny, Ryan Gosling. And they were like, really? really? Ryan Gosling? You know? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And that was like, Ryan Gosling really wanted to do comedy. It was so it's, it, it is a kind of like, you know, and the funny thing is you don't have this big thing of romantic comedies anymore. So you don't necessarily have like in many ways you think like someone like Ryan Reynolds does make sense in a romantic comedy, but yeah. you know, he's just not. You know, they just don't really exist anymore. Hmm. But yeah. okay, okay. So here's, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up after this. But I just, I'm curious to ask you something. Okay. I mean, do you think this concept of the friend zone is something that really exists, or this is something that we as men have created as a construct <laughs> to kind of uh, try and make excuses for why we don't get what we want? Yeah, I mean, I think it really does exist, but I think it really exists as a construct that men have created because they don't get what they want. But no, it, it does exist as a social phenomenon. Um, I have known many friends who have felt like they were friend-zoned. I mean, we we used this term before the movie came out, obviously, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a common term. They didn't term. invent the term. No, it didn't invent it. It's one of the most high-profile explorations of the concept that I've seen. Yes, um, 
So the issue in in my experience growing up was a lot of times you would have the guy that was friend zoned and he would ask he he would he would be constantly complaining about it and trying to get out of the friend zone and then at the same time you had women that I knew that were like you're totally friend zoning that guy and they'd be like no I'm not and it's like girl you are totally friend zoning that guy he clearly wants to hook up with you and she's like no he doesn't he's just glad to be friends with me and it's like no he doesn't just want to be friends with you. Um, so I think there's like uh, there is a there's multiple sides to this, but I do think it actually exists as a social phenomenon. But I do also think that at the same time, men have constructed this to make it seem more exaggerated than than maybe it needs to be, and it's just based on poor communication. Well, and <laughs> really, I, I mean, I think I find this film somewhat relatable in the sense that I was someone who was quite uncomfortable in high school and never really fit into high school very easily and mm. then around the age of 18 or 19 kind of really tried to reinvent myself and part of that process was not always being the nicest person to people because mm. I felt like that was what I needed to do in order to right um in, in order to somehow exercise these demons of you know who I was right. And I don't think it's a gender-specific thing. I think it, it, it happens to both sides of people. But, you know, I can now look back on that time with some kind of distance and actually say that, mm. like, you know, you know, my behavior wasn't necessarily always good. And it was about kind of trying to deal with this idea of being interested in girls who weren't interested in you back. You know. Yeah, yeah. I remember I got friend zoned when I was in high school, and like Chris Brander, it effed me up bad. Uh, her name was Allie, Allie Cromer. Um, You're so she, much more willing to throw the names out than I am. I'm just like I, I never, know. I never throw anybody's name out. Well, the funny thing is now Allie and I actually kind of became relatively decent friends. She ended up marrying a dude from high school, which is kind of a crazy story, right? But I actually met up with them like a few years ago in England when they were traveling. Uh, when I was dating a girl at the time. Um, and uh, and it was funny, but um, no, man, I, I was in love with this girl. She was like my band at the time. I would say like 40% of our songs were like written about her, and I was crazy about this girl. And um, I remember I think I – one time I remember a conversation in her car, and it's so crazy how these things stand up, where I think I, I told her my feelings, and she basically kind of shot me down. And um, and I was close with her for years. We were like – we were in drama together. We were in plays together and stuff like that, and I was really close. And we were in like the senior choir together. And so we were like really close, but um, I wanted more than her. And I I think I did have some resentment towards her and then maybe even towards women as, as like writ large because I didn't get what I wanted. And so I can understand the kind of cultural moment that is saying, listen, men, you need to kind of like be aware of your entitlement in this. And I remember one time, one time I actually got mad at her and I, I was, but it was a real passive aggressive thing. I was talking to somebody else, but she was an earshot of the conversation and I was talking about how she was leading me on. And I remember this and looking back on it, I'm kind of like appalled at, at how juvenile and how um, how wrongheaded that type of the, the feeling and, and the entitlement and the discussion was and how kind of just rude it was to kind of treat her like that in this public setting, relatively public setting. But I totally get it. I get it because I experienced it and I lived it and it is something that's there. And 
I just wonder how it is that we're supposed to deal with this moving forward. Like as an adult, I don't think I treat people the same way. I don't think, I think I've learned a lot since probably in my, I would say my early to mid twenties is when I really started to kind of rethink this sort of thing. Um, and so I don't think I would treat somebody the same way, but I, I fucking get it, man. Like I experienced this well, and I know I think it's also, so it's a, many of my friends did too. Well, I think it's, it's weird. Cause I do think you have to take these things on a case by case basis because, you know, I've definitely known women who are very aware that they're leading somebody on and, you know, kind of do it out of some kind of personal need for validation, attention, and, attention yeah. validation, all of these. Things. So, I mean, yeah, you yeah. know, I, to, to also say that all women are purely put upon upon victims I think is also sometimes a bit of a fallacy as well. Right. So and I, to, to neglect the fact that men do this too. Oh, so exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, um, definitely, you know, I've had, you know, women who I've, you know, who were attracted to me, who I kind of wasn't very interested in, you know, and I didn't necessarily behave in the best possible way in those sets of circumstances because I had a lot of my own insecurities and I've, exactly. you know, and I, I, again, it's, it's a little bit like what I'm saying about the, you know, being a dork in high school and then, you know, losing some weight, uh, you know, sort of like learning how to talk to becoming people pretty better. and then becoming pretty, becoming pretty, um, <laughs> And, you know, like, you know, and I'm, I will say actually, you know, funny enough, one of the things I'll say is that when I was like, you know, 19, I look like kind of like, uh, you know, the perfect kind of like, uh, you look like Van Wilder, all American okay? boy, like blonde hair, <laughs> you know, sort of like, uh, lean know, like, and toned. Yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah. uh, you know, and that, then, you know, and so if I went to say tall so, and Germanic, I remember and like strong and Aryan. I remember like going to like, I remember like going along with some friends to a gay club and I just got like hit on like so much, you know? Yeah. And it was like, you, you get kind of like really, you know, you get kind of an ego boost from this because women right. don't necessarily make their interests as obvious as men do. So it was kind of like you, I, it was kind of like realizing a little bit what it's like to be a woman in these kind of, and yeah. you know, in a nightclub. And I mean, I will say one of the things that I did have is because I wasn't interested in um, any of the people who were hitting on me, I did suddenly start to get very uncomfortable and kind of go like try and very early on kind of let it slip that I was straight so that they wouldn't, think right, anything right. was going to happen. Um, but I know people who wouldn't do that. I know people who would be quite happy. I mean, it's like, I'm sure you had this scenario where you were in a club talking to a girl, you talk for like, like a couple hours, you think you're getting on really, really well. And then she just let slip like something like, Oh yeah, that's a nice watch. My boyfriend has one that's like exactly like that or something like that. Yeah. And you're just kind of like, like, and just in your mind, you're just kind of like, what? You got a fucking boyfriend? Like, what the fuck have I been doing for the last two hours? Yeah. Oh, and then, point? and then there's an anger. Yeah. Like, like what did, and then it's, what did you think that I've been doing? Did you think I just wanted to be friends at a club yeah. at midnight on a Friday night talking to you? Like, look, no. And so that is something interesting to kind of examine and, and think through. And, and it's, it's like that thing of like, I don't know kind of where any of this really sits because part of it is that I do know she's not an idiot. She knows you're not just right. talking to her because she, you want to be friends. But if you're like someone who's like got a boyfriend, you're out at a nightclub, you know, maybe you just want to talk to some people, you know? And so you yeah. don't want to have to go along the whole kind of like, Oh, I need to let you know ahead of time that there's no chance I'm going to sleep with you. Right. You know, so I, I think it's, it's a weird kind of element to this where 
I don't think anybody's necessarily right or wrong in, in that I just think human relationships are fucking complicated. They are fucking complicated. So and I, I suppose that's the <laughs> weird thing that I end up at the end of this film kind of feeling like, I don't know. I don't know quite totally how I feel with where the position this film is trying to take on any of this or where mm-hmm. it's trying to go with any of this. And I think, again, I think the film doesn't know. I think the film gets into such a weird muddled third act where it kind of tries to introduce this character of Dusty to essentially let um, Ryan Reynolds off the hook, you know, mm. and it just kind of feels a little bit like I'm not sure this film has totally got the convictions to follow through on the storyline that it initially sets up. And then it tries to kind of like actually make it all about him actually being a nice guy deep down and really being in love with her. And this isn't just about mm. some kind of revenge bang thing, but like, you know, I was watching it. Alex was kind of half watching it over my shoulder and she just at one point goes like, I'm really not rooting for that guy. You know, <laughs> and I think that that's kind of it, because essentially he's not a nice person. This might be the deepest read of just friends ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're doing a much deeper read of just friends than we did about the ref. <laughs> I know, which is totally counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. Uh, I think we could I think we could leave it at that. Yeah. Oh, and real quick. Um. Christmas, the reason it's kind of Christmassy is because it takes place at Christmas time. Yeah, I think it's, again, it's a similar conceit that I think it, it allows it, it allows a lot of people to kind of be stuck together and, you know, uh, the, the basic structure of Christmas kind of works to structure the film. So even, exactly. like, at the end of it, too, you know, symbolically, he's coming back to her on New Year's Eve. It's like a... Right. It's, it's like a... a, a, a uh, you know, it, it, it's the symbolically everything's beginning all over again. You know? And you know what? I think one of the things I like about this film, too, is I have been away from home for a long time. And I go back for Christmas. Not this year, obviously. But I generally have gone back for Christmas since I moved away in 2008, 2009. Uh-huh. I would go back for Christmas time. And I experienced this sort of thing where you do run into old flames. You're walking around the mall and there's the girl that either you dated or maybe you had a thing with or someone you were best friends with. And you do meet up with these people. And there is something really, for me, nice about kind of revisiting that on film. See, whereas like me, I I don't really know the phenomenon of being from a single place because, you know, Mm. I went to like several different high schools, several different elementary schools. We moved country a bunch of times. So I don't really have that thing of having one place that I'm from. So I don't really have those roots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. Well, cool. cool. Well, lovely deep read of uh, Just Friends. I appreciate that, Kier, for you bringing in the the culturally sensitive issues. Next week, it is the inevitable big one. It's our top 10 films of the year. Oh, shit. So just like last year, it's going to be a top nine countdown with our number one being a double bill special episode. Cool. I think I've already got my suspicion about what Austin's number one is, but I'm going to, but I'm not going to bring it up now just because that would ruin the surprise. I'll be honest. There's a 1A and a 1B right now, and I need to do some deliberating. See, I'm I'm in this weird point where I'm kind of like a little bit unsure about my number one. Partially, too, because I keep thinking, like, what is the thing that I actually want to watch with you? Like, it's like I'm almost like I ah. think I know what my number one might be, but I'm kind of also a little bit like, what is it that I actually <laughs> want to sit and watch with Austin? Ah, interesting. 
Okay. Yeah, I might surprise you though, because okay. I know that we we uh, we have talked about what might be my favorite film of the yeah. year a couple of times, but it might actually be different when I really think about okay. it. Okay, so we'll see. Well, we'll and see. I did I did enjoy revisiting Sing Street last year, so you know it was. Yes. So you know one can only hope for you know similar levels of 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 loveliness. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, tune in next week to find out what our top ten is. Uh, also, um, I'm sure you may have noticed, but there's two episodes in the feed this week, so check out our Star Wars bonus. It gets very heated between me and Austin as we discuss The Last <laughs> Jedi. Um, suffice it to say, we have very different opinions on that film. Yeah, mine's the right one. It sucked. Yours is the wrong one. Yeah, yeah. Mine, mine's the wrong one. It's the best Star Wars film ever made. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, so please uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. If you haven't, uh, check out uh, idigthismovie.com. If you are interested in seeing more of my work, go to kierseewert.com. I haven't been posting a lot on Instagram late because I got my phone stolen a little over a week ago, so I'm still getting that sorted. But uh, we'll hopefully um, be posting again fairly soon. Um, and, yeah, Austin. No, Austin, Austin is up. available on Twitter to start arguments with. Yeah, yesterday I went on a little bit of a rant, but uh, generally I'm pulling myself away from Twitter, but you can always hit me up, Austin underscore Hayden. Okay, and we will see you next week for our top tens. Peace.